This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Nicholas Schlenz, Research Director of Realm of Caring. Nick, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you both for uh, having me on the show. Looking forward to, you know, talking about anything and everything about cannabis. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to, to talk some science today. So uh, looking forward to the conversation. How are you, Brian? Doing well. And I just want to let the record state another East Coaster in the building. <laughs> I was going to say that. But I was like, it's just been the last so many episodes have just been me trying to hold down the West Coast. The East Coast is here. So let the record be stated. Cool. So Nick, before we dive in, I'd love to get a little background about you. Yeah, sure. Born and raised in, you know, good old Buffalo, New York. So what comes to mind is, as we were just talking about, you know, before this, some great Super Bowls and cold winters, but um, did all of my education largely at Buffalo. I completed my PhD in clinical psychology in 2015. And during my time um, in Buffalo, my research was largely focused on drug addiction, but not cannabis at that point in time. It was focused on nicotine and tobacco and looking at, you know, what happens when people abstain from smoking for 12 hours or 24 hours on certain, you know, questionnaires and, you know, laboratory tasks. So you can imagine how great it is to come into a laboratory on a Saturday morning with someone who hasn't smoked in, you know, about a day. We're real thrilled to see you. So (laughs) a big contrast between that work and then the work that I would go on to do at Hopkins, which I'll mention in a moment with cannabis. but yeah, so I really I was formerly trained as a clinical psychologist, but also as a clinical research scientist. So it kind of gives me the best of both worlds where working with patients, you know, in real world settings gives me ideas for, you know, research and grant applications, whereas just keeping up with the research and, you know, the current literature helps me stay on top of, you know, cutting edge or just the best treatments available for whatever topic it is that I'm, I'm looking at. Following my graduation, I got out of Buffalo, nowhere warmer, but I spent a year um, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I did a one-year clinical uh, fellowship at the Bedford, Massachusetts VA. And that would be where my, my interests in cannabis began to bud, pun intended. You know, as the addiction intern there, I was working with a lot of veterans and young you know, men and women returning from Iraq and Afghanistan that had seen a lot of terrible things. And as you know, you'd expect, the, the most common thing you see that is, is PTSD. And, and a lot of times there's co-occurring substance uh, abuse with that. And you know, still the gold standard for PTSD is, is exposure therapy, where you, you know, it just sounds exactly like it is. You just vividly, you know, you know, reimagine different degrees of that trauma or that stressor, you know, to the point where you hope that eventually, you know, you don't have that strong visceral response to it. But as you'd imagine, (laughs) for a lot of people, they don't want to, you know, that that treatment isn't exactly appealing or sexy to come in and at the end of the day, talk about their time in Vietnam or horrible things seen in Iraq or Afghanistan. So naturally, cannabis was discussed, you know, you know, near daily when I was there in 2015. And they were just feeling very strongly about this should be legalized. You know, we made sacrifices for our country, but yet this is still something that, you know, I can't have prescribed to me. I mean, let alone at a VA, a federal, you know, institution. But on top of that, you know, another big complaint was just a lot of these veterans and people that were active duty were on, you know, a long list of medications and many really did not like that. And they were, you know, going after the cannabinoids as an all-natural means for, for relief from symptoms, which I can completely understand and, and support. So that shift took me to Hopkins, where I was privileged to work with um, Dr. Ryan Vandre for three years. I mean, he's been doing you know, cannabis research, you know, at the top of his field for you know over you know, probably 15 years. And I thought that I thought that <laughs> there'd be a quick you know, that the learning curve wouldn't be so steep for cannabis compared to nicotine and tobacco. 
you know, and as I'm sure Kellen and I will, you know, chat about, boy, was I wrong. I didn't know where to start in terms of, of like learning. I'm like, do I go with the, the endocannabinoid system? Do I look at the, you know, the CD1 and CD2 receptors? Like, what do I do? There's, you know, different strains, potencies. But at the same point in time, that that overwhelming like need to learn was like so exciting because I felt like there was like I'm opening up this box that no one really knows about. And admittedly, when people ask me what I do, when I would say smoking research, they're like, okay. Well, then we'll just change, you know, topics. When you mentioned cannabis research, you know, there's usually not an immediate topic change, which makes sense for a number of reasons. But at Hopkins, I was just exposed to a number of different populations, but also, you know, studies, clinical trials, um, drug self-administration studies with volcanomatic vaporizer. There were also, you know, studies of edibles, brownies. I honestly say this to my friends, you know, and this will you know, show my age, but I honestly felt like I was, you know, like the scientist and half-baked when I was there because my office was directly across the hall from the research pharmacy. So during those um, brownie studies in the morning, I could smell them baking in the brownies. And I'm like, I'm like, this is surreal. It was just fascinating. And then sometimes at the end of the day, the pharmacist would say, hey, do you want one? And they, they got me the first time, but not the second. I'm like, I'm like, what? They're like, they're like, they're like, no, there's nothing in these. I'm like, oh, I'm like, sure. So it was just seeing how fascinating that setting was, was, was phenomenal. But at the same point in time, I saw how challenging it was to get off the ground to, to do, um, you know, cannabis research. At the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit at Hopkins, they have a, a long history track record of, of investigating every drug under the sun, you know. Cannabis is still a big one. And then, you know, now more recently, psilocybin. But other institutions and places don't have the, that infrastructure out of, out of the gates to support that research. So as I moved to a different position, I, oh man, I really was privileged and still, you know, miss my time there, have great colleagues and collaborators. And then to close out this rather long-winded response, that took me to Rome um, while I was at Hopkins. I helped build a patient research registry, which was just tracking people's use of, you know, myriad number of, you know, cannabis products in their natural environment across a range of health conditions. And that's been ongoing since about 2016. So five years uh, of data and it's been very humbling, but also very exciting. And yeah, here I am now talking to you guys and excited to see what uh, questions you have. I appreciate you taking us through that backstory. Before we dive into Realm, I'd love to stay with Hopkins. So when you got started there, was there a certain project that you, you you got initiated with? I know you said there was a bunch of different directions you could start with, but can you elaborate on the first project and the first undertaking you went through? Sure. You know, I think one thing that Ryan Boundary lucked out to have me there was, was it was a clinical trial that was actually interesting. It was a clinical trial for individuals with cannabis use disorder, but I mean, there's currently no you know, FDA-approved treatments for cannabis use disorder. Can you so, just elaborate what cannabis use disorder is for those who might not know? Similar to like, you know, any other problematic, you know, disorder, but it's just, you know, characterized by problematic use where that the use is very frequent and interferes with, you know, your, your, your roles and responsibilities. You know, you experience craving, um, a withdrawal syndrome, which people are always like, really, that exists? And I'm like, yeah, it's a real thing, um, but it varies. And... You know, so people, yeah, the jury's kind of out, I think, in the, in the lay public in terms of does it exist. But, but anyhow, getting back to your question, um, Brian, you know, the study that Ryan ongoing was actually quite neat. We gave people either placebo or extended release Ambien to see how that would operate on their cannabis use. Because insomnia among, like, you know, heavy users and even frequent users um, insomnia is one of the most highly, you know, endorsed withdrawal symptoms from cannabis. So then, you know, under that logic, if you target the sleep, then other things should kind of fall into place. Um, that's still, you know, you know, under analysis, but it, it, it was really, really interesting. And we also, another part of that treatment was what's known as contingency management, where you basically pay people for like clean urines. And that's been used for a long time now, especially in the stimulant literature like cocaine. But as you both know, uh, it doesn't work well with a substance that is, you know, heavily lipophilic and stays in your body for, you know, any number of weeks, depending on 
how, how often you use, how recently you used, or even like your body weight. I had one amazing guy um, who was great during the study who stopped using, but I think out of, out of the 12 weeks of, of, you know, that, that was the duration of treatment. I don't think he had a clean urine for probably at least six or eight weeks, which was unfortunate because he wasn't being, you know, incentivized for that. So that's still like an ongoing, you know, challenge in the field. So that was the first study. The second study I was um, a part of was, you know, comparing smoking cannabis via, you know, handheld pipe versus the, you know, the Cadillac, the stores and bickle vaporizer. So that was, you know, one of our probably most highly cited papers, but basically people would come in early in the morning, the conditions were counterbalanced and they would, you know, smoke and we'd watch them smoke. For the volcano medic, it's a little bit more challenging to study that because we got these big balloon bags that, you know, fill up with, you know, the, the vaporized plant material. So there can be a little bit of a haze to it based on like the non, you know, like the non cannabinoid components, like the terpenoids. So we had to put like garbage bags over there. But, you know, for both, both conditions, pipe and vaporizer, I mean, I think vaporization, they had to come, you know, consume three bags and the pipe, they had to consume all of it. So we had a pharmacist would come and check to make sure that everything was consumed. And then they would stay there for the, you know, the whole day in our residential unit. I mean, these are like, people are like, sign me up for this. I'm about it. <laughs> Take out, pool, play pool, you know, sleep, play video games. And then, you know, they'd get poked and prodded periodically for like blood um, to look at different blood levels, some cognitive tasks for like attention, working memory, um, another just, you know, drug effects ratings. And that study, I think was one of my ones I probably enjoyed the most because it was so, it's been really impactful in the field because it just really shows how much stronger the drug effects are for vaporization um, compared to combustible, you know, smoking via pipe, um, where it really becomes really, if you want to make the most out of what you have of your cannabis, you go the vaporized route because it doesn't have all this extra runoff if you were smoking a pipe. But at the same point in time, you know, with stronger drug effects that, you know, brings concerns about, you know, impairment and intoxication. So those were like, you know, a couple of the two that really stood out. So let's talk about Realm of Caring. Yeah. Can you give a little bit of background about how the nonprofit works? Yeah, sure. You know, um, you know, essentially this was largely founded by two moms, you know, um, Heather Jackson and Paige Figgy, who had children that were really having, you know, nightmare of a time with very rare seizure disorders. And we're just looking for some kind of treatments, some, some help, some hope. And, you know, back when they, you know, were approached by the Stanleys, the Stanley brothers who formed Charlotte's Web, um, which is named after the late, you know, Charlotte Figgy, of course, um, you know, you know, both Paige's, you know, daughter Charlotte and Heather's son Zakai had fantastic improvements, you know, in terms of like seizure reduction to the point where, you know, each of these two wonderful moms and strong moms we're finally being able to like, you know, start a relationship and learn about their child for the first time. And I can't imagine what that's like, you know, as a parent, but I remember a conversation that I had with Heather in Montreal and she just stated, you know, when you finally have that experience of something that works, you want to just, you know, scream from the mountaintops. We got to put more time and money and effort into, into studying this. And I think, you know, both Heather and, and Paige are trailblazers, um, but that's how Realm got off the ground. And to this day, it has, you know, three main, you know, um, you know main aims, which are research, um, education, and also advocacy. So I'm kind of the, the guy that's in charge of research. But importantly, the, the education, we get a lot of people that call in to our care specialists who just don't know how to, you know, where to start. They're thinking about using but it can be very daunting. So they give a lot of great recommendations and support, you know, and what I love about it is, is that the recommendations are based on, you know, ongoing, you know, growing literature. They're not just what your gut feeling is or, or your intuition. So it sets people up, people up for, um, you know, hopefully a good experience. And then advocacy, again, is really focused on, you know, really trying to destigmatize cannabis, you know, and it's, you know, valuable role as a, as a therapeutic. You know, I think the three of us can all agree that, you know, 
there's been, you know, tremendous reform in the U.S., but there's still, you know, some, a lot of states that just aren't budging. Um, so I think, you know, as, as time passes, you know, our initiatives at Rome and, and other foundations and, and ongoing institutions will just really help to normalize the use of, of this fascinating plan. Kellen, dive in there. Explain a little bit more about how important the value that Realm's bringing to the industry. Well, I mean, when I first got in the industry in 2015 or so, honestly, it was really, really challenging to find primary literature, right? Um, like you couldn't even look up the boiling point of THC. And so the fundamental like scientific knowledge associated with these chemicals just was lacking, right? And so research is going to be the most important undertaking for the cannabis community, just so we can actually tie hard science to a lot of these anecdotal claims that are out there as far as everyone using the cannabis plant to treat a different illness and coming up with kind of different results. And that's where science comes into play. Uh, I'm really curious about your transition from John Hopkins to a uh, realm of caring. What was that transition like? Because I know it, it can be kind of... Um, a unique experience going from uh, a very formalized institute to almost just a, a private nonprofit organization. I mean, can you elaborate on that transition a little? And before I do, I just want to say like, you know, what you just, I couldn't have said, but you just explained, you know, you know, more eloquently. So I really, you know, appreciate just how you summarized the importance of, of this work, but it, it was a bit of a, of a shift, you know, from being at an institution where, you know, the, the name carries so much clout. Yeah. But also just, going to an office, um, you know, where and moving to you know, realm where I'm, you know, you know, telecommuting, you know, haven't met any of my coworkers in person. So I think, you know, I think I've been accustomed to just being in my office as, you know, during graduate school and postdoctoral training. So it's not really that different in terms of like doing my work or, or checking things off the list, but it does make me yearn for like a time when we can all kind of get back to, to baseline and, I don't know, just group experiences are just so much different, you know, even in person. Yes. I don't know if you guys, I think, did you guys go to MJ Bizcom? We did. I mean, one of our um, realm staff, Adam Young, was just really remarking on how, man, networking in person just is so much better than doing it, you know, over the phone or versus Zoom. And I can, I can't even imagine. It's been a pretty good experience. But Kellen, I think, been working on this registry for five years, so there was really no anything new. But I will say, and I think you can probably appreciate this, at Realm, I've worked more closely with industry. So Charlotte's Web and some of our other sponsors. And that actually required me to really learn a new vocabulary, if you will. Because when I have meetings with, with various associates at any cannabis or company, they're not scientists. You know, I could be talking with sales marketing associates, you know, you know, each time that I, each meeting, there's usually someone new and the frame has to be adjusted for that. And initially it, it was, that was the, the most challenging you know, experience that I had. I'm like, okay, you know, the CEO, that person, you know, I haven't interacted with any yet, but their time is money. I'm going to have to condense, you know, my, 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 what I want to say into, you know, like, an, you know, that elevator pitch, the sales and marketing, I'm going to have to just also break down the scientific jargon and, you know, translate to what it means, you know, what do you say to a potential consumer who calls in? So that's still an ongoing, you know, area of, of growth for me. Because um, it's, it's markedly different than academia. Industry wants you know, deliverables. When will you have this paper to us buy? And I mean, as you both know, you know, just it's not like you're putting something together, like physically, just the, the cognitive labor, things to come up, analyses, you know, go in unexpected directions. But I do appreciate this experience because I think it, it helps me be more sensitive to, I have all these great findings to communicate and I don't want to have those be lost by not communicating them in the right way to stakeholders and the public. So I'm mindful of that still. Can you share one of those great findings? Of course. Our recent work with our registry, basically the people that are completing this registry, you know, are people that registered with Realm of Caring. And it's basically an online survey that contains a bunch of different measures that look at quality of life, anxiety, depression, 
pain, healthcare utilization. So that would include ER admissions, outpatient visits, insurance costs, sick days. And we would also ask about specific products that they were using because as, as, as Kellen, you know, mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, when this first began in 2016, you know, it was like the wild west, you know, in the absence of clinical trials where you can really just have tight control over who you're bringing in and also what you're studying, you know, we don't have that still for the most part. So this was an excellent opportunity to just have real people, you know, compared to your typical clinical trial patient that has to meet certain strict criteria that are using a variety of products for a variety of conditions, telling us the dosing, but importantly, also letting us know like the effects that they're, you know, experiencing on those conditions, because a lot of, you know, again, we don't know a lot of that information still. And this data, even though it's not as rigorous as a clinical trial, can provide really, really, you know, strong insights for future clinical trials. Anyhow, um, with that said, you know, our most recent paper focused on the use of people that were using CBD for, you know, either, you know, as a treatment for anxiety or depression. And we had a control group um, as well. And what was really unique, but I'll, I'll just drop back real quickly. So everyone completes a baseline survey. Then they go on to have complete additional surveys every three months, email invites. So it's some great longitudinal data. But the anxiety and um, depression paper, it was interesting because there, there, there's been mixed literature on, on both of those in terms of um, CBD. But we found that in, in that paper that at baseline, individuals that were using seasonal CBD products had significantly lower scores on the depression measure, but that finding didn't carry over to anxiety. So that was really interesting. A unique part of our design is that, like, well, what about people that are not using, but at follow-up start using? Like, that might be interesting to look at. So we call them initiators. And we found that people that weren't <laughs> at baseline, but then began using at a follow-up time point, had drastic reductions in both anxiety and depression. So that was really fascinating to see. And among the people that were using it out of the gates and continued to use at follow-up, you know, the, the effect was still there, but a little bit weaker. Folks that didn't use throughout the entire study had much lower, you know, um, scores for every other measure, like sleep, pain, quality of life. So that was, you know, really, you know, interesting to, to see that finding because again, currently limited data out there. And a lot of it's preclinical, you know, from rodent data. So it's different, you know, going from, you know, like a rodent, you know, paradigm where they stress out a rat to looking at, you know, how it, you know, helps someone that's anxious for whatever reason or you name it. So what do you think the mechanism is? Do you have a theory? I mean, I know there's nothing like yeah, concrete right now, but I'm just curious about what, how you think that CBD is actually causing that biological uh, reaction. My guess is that, I mean, it's not so much of a, of a big agonist at, at CD1, the CD1 receptors, but, you know, I have to imagine that I think there's a pretty like known potential interaction or, you know, cross-reaction with, with SS, you know, serotonin. So that could be it. But at the same point in time, I don't, in terms of like the pharmacological, you know, mechanisms or even just the neuro, you know, physiological mechanisms, I'm not quite sure. But once I saw that you had the chemistry background, I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask Kellen. I'm like, what are Kellen's thoughts on this? Yeah, put it back on Kellen. <laughs> I mean, serotonin has to be what's going on as far as the, the depression aspect, right? I mean, positive serotonin or serotonin inhibitors, right? That's what most antidepressants are, correct? I didn't know. I'm not familiar with the link between depression and anxiety, honestly. I, I don't, I mean, anxiety would be, the symptoms would be like increased heart rate, Lack of focus, maybe, right? Like shorter temper, restlessness is that one. Right. So I would say that, I mean, there's got to be tied to the endocannabinoid system as a whole because would you think so? Go ahead. I would definitely think so because I think, you know, kind of, you know, as a clinical psychologist, kind of like the the difference, you know, between mood and anxiety, you know, that we're just talking about. I think with anxiety, yeah, you've got a different constellation of symptoms, but I think that fear, that dread is much different and much more salient for anxiety um, than depression. And, you know, there's been a number of studies, ongoing studies where they've been looking at, you know, cannabis for, you know, PTSD. And that, that kind of speaks to, can cannabis help with PTSD by helping to extinguish 
that fear response via interaction with the endocannabinoid system. And there's, I think there's some great initial data there, but as with anything cannabis, there's still a, you know, a ways to go. That's just my two cents. Was the study, did you guys just use pure CBD in the study for the paper? These were just, you know, whatever people were, were using. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. So we, we actually excluded people that were, you know, using pharmaceutical CBD, so like epidiolex. Yeah. You know, and markedly different from the majority of, you know, CBD products. But by and large, you know, a lot of like isolate use, but also full spectrum products that you don't see with like the pharmaceutical grade. Yeah. And that makes it even more challenging from a polypharmaceutical standpoint. Yeah. So if I have a product that I use for my anxiety, that helps me. Is it safe, which is probably the wrong word to use, if I don't have that product, but still have anxiety and I'm on the road and I grab another CBD-based product, can I feel comfortable that they're interchangeable to both treat my anxiety? Or is that one where there's other components inside the products that play a vital role in helping my anxiety? Really, 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 really great question. Um, Brian, um, I was you know fortunate enough to, to dabble in some 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 pharmacokinetic work while I was at Hopkins, but you know and still like learning about CBD and the onset of therapeutic effects and how long that takes. It's still not completely you know understood. You know, in general, realm of caring and even Charlotte's Web tell our clients you know start low, go slow, and of course you know that would be the case for a lot of anxiety medications, like your, your SSRIs. So yeah, it's, I mean, I would err, I would, I would, I would play the, the conservative card and say, you know, I don't know, I don't think that we don't have data right now to suggest that you can just swap one out with the other. Um, it would be really interesting if you could for a number of reasons, especially, you know, given how much, you know, insurance plans cost and prescription medications. I mean, you can really lower the overall healthcare costs. But I had another different interview a while back where you know a person had asked, "What if I was trying to stop um, and discontinue taking benzodiazepines um, for anxiety, and I, and I wanted to, you know, use CBD or cannabis? What would you recommend?" And I said, "Well, as a kind of not a real doctor, I would say consult with your physician because you know benzo, benzodiazepine withdrawal can you know be lethal." And just I mean, you got to like follow the current literature. I think people are really excited about this. But it's also to be challenging to not know how you can actually use it or maximize the use of it for therapeutic, you know, efforts. And I get that. I mean, as, as human beings, we want stuff fast. You know, like here we are, 2021. You know, Amazon culture. Like, you get something in like a day. Sometimes the same. You know, at Baltimore, you know, the same day. But like, I think to my, my childhood of like, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and like whatever, like dumb toy was on there. It'd be like, you know. Call us now and shipping and handling will be like 15 bucks and you'll see it in like eight to 12 weeks. No? So <laughs> things are different. People kind of aren't fond on, on waiting. And I think a lot, of, a lot of times we do see people discontinue prematurely you know, cannabis and, and CBD because they're, they're not like, you know, where, where's the effect? Doesn't it take uh, like a, a couple of weeks for even antidepressants to, to kick mm-hmm. in too once you start antidepressant medication, right? It, it, it's not like a, a light switch where they like take the pill and the next day they're like, oh, I'm doing good. Like it, it takes a long time to re, re-regulate those like biochemical pathways in the body. But exactly, I, yeah. I wonder though, if, if people associate the cannabinoids all together, right? Where like, if you take a, a hit of a bowl, you're instantly high. So the same concept, if you consume a cannabinoid CBD, maybe you're instantly feeling or looking for that same uh, effect, which is of course not correct, but also off-putting for the person who's like, I took this this edible CBD edible and I feel nothing. Well, it's like, well, yeah, I think there's some really interesting points in there. Continue to be really, you know, not having formal training in, in pharmacology, but just the route of, of administration, you know, influence on the type of product being used. I think is very fascinating, and I think that's why when you look at the marketplace currently, cannabis, you know, you've got edibles, you've got tinctures, you've got vape cartridges, and they all have different, you know, you know, durations of of their, you know, the onset of their drug effects. You know, I think now, you know, some of the larger companies have pushed out, you know, CBD vape cartridges, which I'm curious how people will respond to that. Because I think you would imagine with that route of administration bypasses a lot of things and probably has less products, you know, that's also lost in the process due to just in the stomach and metabolism. So I'm really, really curious. 
Yeah, honestly, uh, my experience with CBD, the only time I've ever felt something like for sure that something happened was when I vaped CBD, concentrated CBD oil, right? Yeah, and it, it was instant. Like I literally felt like my shoulders relaxed, wild. And like I've taken CBD pills and it's just like, it's like nothing. But it's the only time I've actually ever felt an effect from CBD is from smoking it, honestly. And so um, I'm curious, were you able to look at that data from your guys' recent paper and notice if the majority of consumers were either like ingesting pills of CBD from an edibles perspective, or was it kind of mixed 50-50? Do you even have a guess at some of that data? You know, as you might expect, just for like, the, given like the nature of like how realm of caring started with like the focus on epilepsy research, you know, for our, our epilepsy, you know, research, almost the majority is, you know, people using tinctures because they're children, adolescents, and even with anxiety and, you know, depression, it's, it's similar. It's tinctures. You're also seeing, you are seeing plant material and kind of, again, some variations in whether or not it's balanced in terms of its chemotype or, like, you know, THC dominant or CBD dominant. So there's some signal in there, but I think it requires like more, more unpacking because just, I think that's the challenge of, of cannabis right now is just the product alone. The plant alone is incredibly complex. Yeah, it is. You know, our endogenous cannabinoid system. And then you've got route of administration. And then you have how the drug is, you know, packaged, like in terms of just edibles. I mean, I learned that depending on the fat content in the product might alter, you know, the the time course of that drug effect. Yeah. And I think that's now where I think I've noticed that some, you know, within the industry, there are, there is a greater focus on how to maximize, you know, the drug, you know, in terms of its, its onset and not having to wait. So I'm really curious to see where that goes. Could, you know, could that mean you'll have something that you can ingest that doesn't take an hour and a half to, to kick in? where it could be, you know, 30 minutes, who knows, but I think there'll we'll be a lot of great stuff. We'll see probably very soon with that. And I'm excited about it. Kellen, I'm going to push back on, on you. When, when I consume CBD, it's because my anxiety is running rampant. And in those moments, I'm not looking to feel anything except for not have my anxiety run rampant. So for me, when I take those, those edibles, or those consumables, I instantly feel better and wonder if it's placebo effect, if it's my breathing, whether or not it matters or not. But I start to instantly feel like calmer. And I wonder if it's my brain's kind of kicked in a gear knowing that things are going to slow down. Or maybe if it's all just mental and it's all just one of my own issues. But uh, for me, I'm not taking CBD to feel. I'm taking it to kind of slow me down. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to play one on TV. <laughs> yeah, totally. But like my guess would be like if you take a pill and instantly feel something from it, then like it's placebo. What? So let's, let's, let's back up. When I say instantly, I mean like rather like shortly after, right? Like if I consume that and I go to sit down and my breathing starts to slow down and maybe it's all, all mental based, but at that point, I don't really care, right? I'm, no, if it I'm, works, just trying, right? I'm just looking for some sort of relief to slow it down because in those moments before it's not going so well for me. Yeah, no, and I mean, everyone's different, right? And this is the whole personalized medicine thing. But yeah, for me, for me personally, Smoking it like in a vape pen was the only way I've actually felt like the like the body effects of it. Does that make sense? I don't think I I don't know if I have anxiety to be honest with you. So like I don't know if I've ever taken CBD to treat anxiety from that perspective. But I mean, if it works, what what are your thoughts, Nick? I think you're both right on the money. I think it's all of the things that you know, Brian, you mentioned, and I appreciate you you know sharing your experience. I've definitely experienced my share of anxiety, you know, in life, especially in graduate school. Um, and I think all things going on that I've really like thought about. I think there are expectancies of like, you know, when I take this, there's the thought, okay, I'll finally have some relief and whatever expect, expectancy, you know, how that operates. I don't know that they've figured that out, but that's something interesting. There's this other, you know, there's this other, you know, um, construct in the field of psychology that's, you know, called like distress tolerance, where just like it sounds like how much distress can you tolerate? But again, knowing that if you have something available to you versus say not having a pill or edible or anything available to you, there's like some, there's can be some, you know, calm and, and just Zen and knowing like, okay, right here, this, I've got something I can use it whenever I want. And then I do think, you know, people just respond differently. In terms of CBD, you know, people have heard people talk about maybe you have to take it longer for certain, you know, conditions, but also they talk about how, well, what if you stop seeing a response? 
which is could be possibility because of just you know tolerability. But I think um, combination of, of just product administration expectancies, just pharmacological mechanisms—they're all at play. And I think that's that's like the beauty of of what makes the science so so really interesting. Because who knows? I shouldn't be saying that. Like, who knows? We don't. We want. We want an answer, right? But yeah. <laughs> many Monday. too many problems. So, Nick, what's one area of cannabinoid? research that would surprise or shock the average day individual? Um, in terms of? Just anything in your research that you've come across that you think would shock or surprise, let's say, an everyday cannabinoid user. That's a really good question that I haven't thought about because, you know, things are pretty like relatively like, you know, nuanced and stable with, with realm. But I think maybe I'll just go back to what I briefly spoke about earlier on with, with withdrawal. Again, I mean, you know, the three of us, we aren't, we've all watched like the classic movies, I, I would, you know, wager a guess of just, you know, Cheech and, you know, Cheech and Chong, like, you know, half-baked, you name it. But when I got to Hopkins and was learning about cannabis withdrawal, I don't know what, what, what the current field is like still, um, but it was very divided earlier on, like that's like the, the early to late 90s. People are just like, no, that's not a thing because, you know, put that against tobacco withdrawal. Obviously, we would say, you know, nicotine withdrawal is going to be much more severe compared to, you know, cannabis withdrawal. But then I'll look at other drugs of abuse, like opioids. Now that's a withdrawal. I mean, you're talking like extreme GI distress, you know, sleep problems, things. I mean, you know, think like, you know, like train spotting, you know, not to like say that that's the clinical picture or even cocaine. I think cannabis is withdrawal is closest to nicotine, but it's still, and it is possible. Um, I think people are probably not, are, are reluctant to believe it because I don't think your average user is probably using it daily. Or even if they are using it daily, maybe they might be, it might be at such small doses. There's any number of reasons, but, you know, it, it's, it's a thing that's been, you know, replicated time and time again. It's different in terms of its onset where with, nicotine, if you don't have, you know, I'm a former smoker. If, you know, if I didn't have a cigarette an hour, like I would, after an hour, I begin to feel it. With, with cannabis, it's, you know, around like two days is where it begins to peak. And then it is, you know, it takes about a month or so to resolve. Um, and you can even have like just residual, like protracted withdrawal effects. I bring up the withdrawal because I think you don't really hear much about that topic withdrawal, you know, in our current climate of, of legalization and reform, we talk about like the therapeutics and I'm not, and I'm not trying to be like, oh, this like, you know, gray cloud, that's just like, you know, you know, ruin, ruin all the fun. But I, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, in medical patients, you know, is it possible? Will, will, will you see that? Will you see different withdrawal symptoms based on, again, like different routes, like if you've got something that's vaporizing it versus edibles. So I think that's really, really interesting and intriguing. And again, of all the drugs of abuse, I think that one probably has like the least street cred, but is still an area that's being you know targeted for for treatment. Your favorite minor cannabinoid that you don't think gets enough love in the medical cannabis space? That's a good one because this is like a point of not, I shouldn't say a point of confession for me and the folks at Rome. So you have to understand too that I have this this research position there at Rome, and then. A lot of the other, um, my amazing staff, Tony, Sasha, Adam, Zarek, Bell, and, and our executive director, Steve Young, they've had all these interactions with, with folks. They do, you know, do seminars, webinars about the, the latest trends and blogs detailing like the latest results, like your CBG, like Delta 8. And I take it like, kind of like a deep breath in and I just I'm like, I, I, I guess if I wasn't a scientist, I, I wouldn't be, I don't want to say like skeptical, but you know, one thing that I try to do is, and not just me, but even, you know, um, Ryan Boundary at Hopkins, because we, we still collaborate with him. Is there any data, you know, like, what does the data say? And it's tough because there's, there's a wealth of data on, especially on, you know, just now with CBG, but a lot of it's, in, I mean, almost exclusively limited to preclinical models. So how do you extrapolate those effects to human use? I don't have an answer for you, but it's just, I mean, it, it's just, there's so many out there and, I can't accept that you're like a mother who loves all of her kids evenly because we all know that's not true. Everyone has a favorite. So Nick, your favorite minor cannabinoid, even if it's not if it's not that underpopular. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm pretty boring in this in this space with my my duties at Realm and even at Hopkins. 
most of my time is with is with CBD and trying to figure out what's going on with CBD. I think to to kind of like slightly change your question and cheat, I think what really intrigues me are the terpenoids. As I was leaving Hopkins, that was a study that was starting up of looking at some of the more prevalent ones, like limonene and pinene, uh, the things that you, you smell in everyday fragrances, fragrances and products. But I quickly learned how to test those in humans, even though they've got this like generally regarded as safe status with the FDA, mm-hmm. and it changed the, the, you know, it from like just smelling to just ingestion. It's a whole new ball game. But I think, you know, they were doing things with like limonene, like vaporizing it. And I think, I mean, again, this goes back to that, the entourage effect. Like, are, are these effects independent or interactive or synergistic? I mean, I believe synergistic, but the data hasn't been conclusive just yet. So I think, yeah, I don't know. Is it weird saying I'm a, I'm a terpenoid, terpenoid man and not like a... I like it. They're all, they're all terpenes, right? It's just a sesquiterpene versus a monoterpene. So it counts. Do you think that the entourage effect or minor cannabinoids have a larger potential? I think there's things that we already do that are already available to us that are kind of similar to like the therapeutic value of some of the terpenoids. I mean, I think I told, you know, someone pretty recently, like when you think of like aromatherapy and, you know, aromatic oils, I mean, that's really not that much different from like what a terpene would confer in a sense. So I think there's, again, great preclinical work with with some of the um, the terpenoids on anxiety and mood, but I can't wait to see, you know, you know, more like what's out there. Because again, just thinking about the complexities of the plant, you commonly hear just among recreational users, well, yeah, the CBD, that just balances out kind of like, the, it has like a protective effect, you know, against the THC. But in terms of like the, the other terpenoids, I think what makes it complex is like, how the hell do you study this? Like in, in like a, a controlled, rigorous setting that can give you like confidence that, you know, what your conclusion is. And I think that's why all these studies that need to be done are very piecemeal. It's like step by step by step by step by step. And it goes slow because of just, you know, the current, you know, um, scheduling status makes it really difficult to pretty much do anything at a fast pace. So, yeah. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? Of, in terms of? Just what has like surprised you the most or what did you come into the cannabis industry thinking one thing and then figure out really quickly that it was slightly or quickly the opposite. I think coming into it, going back to my original experience with nicotine and tobacco, I mean, we're all familiar with like big tobacco and just there's really no, there's no good intent behind um, them. I wondered what it was going to be like with some of these different, you know, companies that I was working with. Was it going to be bottom line? I mean, if you think about it, you know, the bottom line for any, any company, regardless of what product they're, they're selling, you need people to keep coming back. And in terms of like cannabis, you know, it could be the symptoms that, you know, are retractable that keep people coming back. Um, or, you know, I'm just, I'm not even speculating or saying a concrete statement, but, you know, what if, what if there's like psychological, psychological dependence on it, the comfort of it or physical, um, you wonder. But so far of, of my interactions with, you know, our sponsors, I, I've been really, really impressed with, really trying to, I mean, to do it right, because there's already enough stigma. And if we don't do it right, there won't be, you know, more progress in this field in the first place, very like fast and loose with, with the research. So, you know, seeing that there's, you know, a great push to reduce human suffering and to provide an alternative treatment that is, you know, viable and has a decent a side effect profile that you know really doesn't compare to compare to more severe you know drugs that are available for various conditions. So I've been impressed by that. Will it stay that way? I don't know. I'd like to hope so, but we'll see. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? I think one thing that I still depending on who I'm with, that gets me is, you know, asking why or asking a question. I think a lot of times we just accept things based on, you know, who's talking, but I think being curious and asking, but, but why, why, why does this happen? Or, you know, telling more about that. I think that's important. I don't do that enough because, you know, I'm not going to stand up in a conference when some prominent speaker is, is telling the data, you know, presenting the data. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like why should we care, bro? Like, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, there's more tactful ways to do that. But I think 
asking why, I mean, it fosters that, you know, you know, analytical thought that, you know, you know, really makes you a good consumer of, of knowledge, but also of products and just other, you know, religions, cultures, creeds, sexual orientations, you name it. So I think just being open and just asking and learning and it's learning. I love it. <laughs> All right. Prediction time. We've had a breakthrough in cannabinoid therapy sometime in, in the future. This is where we currently are operating. Is it a single cannabinoid therapy or is it a androgesec with multiple cannabinoids that is inducing the effect? Which one are you most bullish on making the more impactful short-term? I'd say the latter. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's no data there right now, strong data for the entourage, but I just, I mean, I don't want to say, oh my God, but I just, yeah, I, I think it's going to be uh, some type of combination treatment where there's like different, you know, different levels of the minor cannabinoids and, and major and other, I don't know, like it just really like, uh, how would you describe it in terms of like a, like if you had to compare it to like a, a drug that's currently available on the market, I don't even like know what that would even be comparable to in terms of like calibrating the, you know, the cannabis plant for therapeutic use. But yeah. Going. I would say that it is going to be the entourage effect. I think that if I was a betting man, I mean, I think that cannabis has the opportunity to pioneer the field of like polypharmacy, right? Where multiple molecules come in to treat one illness. And you see this in uh, the antibiotics world right now, right? Instead of using one antibiotic to go kill like penicillin, ampicillin, right? One molecule to go in and kill all these microbes or bacteria, if you will. Now, and then of course some live and you have these superbugs, all these other things. What they're doing now is they're feeding them like multiple molecules. And so like one molecule may just inhibit one specific pathway in the organism, right? And so it doesn't kill it, just that one molecule. But then with the other molecule as well present, the like simultaneous inhibiting of two different things then causes the, the microbe to die which then it's harder for the microbes to like generate uh, immunity to that. But I think that like you're seeing that push to utilize multiple molecules to treat one specific problem in other industries as well. So I think that, I mean, personally, I believe the entourage effect is a thing. I mean, I've consumed pure or like very, very pure cannabinoids, a single like THC versus- All for science, all uh, for science. Yeah, all for science, of course, right? But versus consuming- like a, a full spectrum oil and the experience is drastically different, right? So there's something going on there from a, an interaction standpoint. So I, I do think the entourage effect is, is the right answer. What are you, what are your thoughts, Brian? I went into this assuming the both of you would take the single cannabinoid therapy just because <laughs> as we've talked about today, there's so many variables that are in play. So I'm a little surprised to be arguing what I thought was a, a layup on that direction, but that's kind of a, a thought for another time. But We've talked today about all the complexities and all the challenges with all the variables, and now we're adding more variables into the small the small therapy. So I think a single cannabinoid therapy has less variability between all these other predictability measurements that we talked about, and think it's more likely that the pharmaceutical companies can come in. I think, Kellen, you preached this pretty aggressively, that they don't like variability in their effects because there's lawsuits. So my thought would be single cannabinoid therapies. It makes a lot of sense because I think starting out too, you know, to isolate, to like, just for, you know, the standpoint of internal validity and being able to be confident that this is, you know, I'm measuring what I think I'm measuring. Right. You know, one compound that's, that's really important. And I think the one thing that I, I talk about to, to people with in terms of, you know, with, with CBD and, and the regulation of it is just, you know, when you go to your pharmacy, you don't have to really worry about like prescription medications by and large from one month to the next month like fluctuations in the active ingredient in your medication. Whereas if you have like a mom and pop, you know, curated CBD product, you know, from week to week, if you have a condition that's severe, like epilepsy that needs a stable product, you might not actually have that. Um, but you know, that's a, a different topic from like single versus, you know, entourage. But I think, I don't know. I think I could, I could go either way with it. I mean, there's yeah. pragmatic, I mean it's pragmatic to go with the, the, the single out of the gates. Sure. Could you imagine like someone walking in and be like, I know this is 90% CBD, but like last time it was 3% CBC. Now it's six and a half percent. Am I going to feel a different effect? Like 
those are the type of conversations that most people don't walk in when they buy a product. They don't start asking about some of the lower percentages on the back of the label. They're just kind of assuming that everything is within what they expect it to be. Even, you know, in, in terms of just personalized medicine, I've worked on a number of smoking cessation clinical trials that, you know, looked at like bupropion, which is marketed as Zyban, but also Chantix. And there's a lot of even just, you know, genetic factors that cause people to respond differently to different treatments. For example, there's, there's known differences between how people metabolize the nicotine patch versus Chantix to the point where it almost came down to you go into a CVS or a Rite Aid and you take like a litmus test to see like, which one should I take Chantix or, you know, uh, you know, the nicotine patch for, you know, quitting smoking. I could see something similar like that too, um, in terms of like trying to, you know, estimate or, or, or kind of like um, predict, you know, or um, treatment response in terms of some just crazy cocktail of just varying levels of everything. Well said. So for Nick, for those who want to learn more about your research and they want to donate and get involved, where can they get in touch? You can you know, go to www.realmofcaring.org. We've got plenty of great information there. Um, our blog, our folks, you know, Sasha keeps it, does a great job kind of keeping and, you know, have a finger on the pulse of the industry and trends. So the blog is a great place to learn what's, you know, what's new, what's novel, but also for the, for the person that's just like, oh, I'm kind of skeptical. You know, we have a huge research library and also a bunch of webinars because another thing that we didn't really get to talk about is healthcare practitioners also don't know a lot about what I taught in school. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the craziest thing. I can't believe that, that it's not taught in, in yeah. medical school. Again, like it doesn't exist. Our website, um, a lot of great information there. And I want to say, like, this has been, I think, what you know, I don't want to offend previous, you know, previous you know, interviewers, but this has been like a really, you know, phenomenal conversation. Just the way it started um, before we recorded, I'm like, man, like, I can't wait to talk to these guys. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. But, you know, thank you both for extending me, you know, the opportunity, um, you know, to speak with you, Lindsay, for you know, going after you guys because Grasslands, they're awesome. Thanks for sponsoring the podcast, Lindsay. <laughs> it was all my wallet all my wallet we'll link it all up in the show notes thanks so much nick yeah thank you both thanks for listening to today's show to check out more great cannabis podcasts go to podconnects.com Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Kenna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Kenna podcasters right here on Pod. Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.